We find ourselves in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 14 this morning. If you'll turn there with me in your Bible or in your worship guide, I'll ask you to stand if you're able for the reading of God's Word. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. The Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. There's a pretty interesting article in The Economist uh, recently about the church in China. And I'm going to come back to speak about uh, aspects of the article uh, at the end of the sermon, but the article itself went through uh, what it was like to be in China during the Cultural Revolution and where the church is now. The church has grown to millions uh, currently in China and is undergoing increased scrutiny and and some increased hearing by the Chinese government as a result of being larger and more influential than ever. The church used to be millions in China leading up to the Cultural Revolution. And when Mao Zedong took power, half a million or so Christians were, were pursued to death and tens of thousands more were put into labor camps. And the church would say that in that generation was lost uh, an entire generation of male leaders in the church. And that's who they were targeting and pursuing, and the church was all but extinguished during uh, the Cultural Revolution. I think that would be an apt time to ask the question, where is Jesus? In the midst of that kind of suffering and scrutiny and seeming abandonment, where is Jesus? It's a question that we ask in times of intense suffering or struggle, but it's times that, it's a question that we ask at regular times as well. Sometimes simply when we open the Bible and read again the same old story and we think, oh man, this just does, there's nothing here. There's nothing happening. Where is Jesus? That's a question at the heart of what's going on in our passage. The, um, you were here last week and if you weren't, it doesn't matter. Right before this passage, Jesus starts to more intentionally disclose that he is departing. He's going away. 
So imagine, just for a moment, placing yourself in the shoes of the disciples. You've been with Jesus. You finally have arrived at Jerusalem. Everything's been moving forward. He's raised a man from the dead. Things are terribly exciting. And suddenly Jesus says, listen, I'm leaving. Think about letting the air out of the balloon. What? You imagine the fear and the wonder and the, the disillusionment amongst the disciples. This is not how things are supposed to go. And Peter is so, so caught up in the moment. He says, listen, why, if you're going, let us go with you at least. Why won't you let me go with you? He says, I'll lay down my life for you. And Jesus says, actually, no, you won't, Peter. You'll deny me before the cock crows in the morning. It's an, it's an incredible time of anguish and tension and disillusionment and um, uh, difficulty in understanding what's happening for the disciples. And this is what Jesus is continuing to unpack. It's helping the disciples to wrestle with why Jesus is departing. And maybe, just maybe, Jesus' departure is necessary. Maybe even it's a good thing. And maybe when you experience an absence of the presence of Christ, maybe there is good or significance in that as well. This is what we're wrestling with this morning. And so let's let's begin to make our way through the passage and see how it helps us to understand Jesus' departure. If you look at verse 1, Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. And if you've been reading along, you, you have to pause for a moment and say, Are you kidding? Really? Jesus has himself said that he's very troubled. Not even a chapter ago, John has pointed out that Jesus is very troubled in his spirit. And here we start chapter 14, and Jesus is saying, let not your hearts be troubled. Well, Jesus, your heart is really troubled in the midst of all this. Why should the heart of the disciples, or the hearts of the disciples, not be troubled as well? Jesus seems to be suggesting that his departure is a good thing. In verse 2, he says, I go to prepare a place for you. And again, as Zach helpfully uh, suggested or elaborated in terms of his uh, preparation for confession, you know, sometimes American evangelicalism, for lots of perhaps some obvious some obvious reasons, we tend to think that Jesus is going to, you know, it's HGTV, he's going to trick out our penthouse in heaven. And that, and you've got to take a step back and say, that probably isn't what Jesus is saying. What is Jesus after? Well, it's after that he is going by virtue of his death to actually make a place for you in the family of God, in his household. There is no place for you until you have been atoned for, and that only comes as Jesus goes to his death. Yet we have to be honest with the way that we struggle. We struggle with this this notion of departure, and it feels like desertion. It certainly did for the disciples. How to understand why it would be necessary for Jesus to depart. They haven't, they haven't put everything together yet, and they don't have the, the advantage that we do looking back and having all the pieces in place. How necessary it is for Jesus to depart. But it's a reminder, even in our own experience of Jesus' absence, that perhaps something significant is going on. Perhaps something... You know, they can't anticipate the cross. We can't anticipate everything that Jesus may have in store for what's occurring in the midst of his absence. Rochelle Ross Williams is a 13-year-old, a beautiful 13-year-old girl who is 4 feet 7 inches and 278 pounds. 
She has difficulty getting around, breathing, of course suffers with all kinds of things like diabetes, and her weight is a result of a genetic condition, which is called uh, uh, Prader-Willi syndrome, which affects, um, I think, the 15th chromosome. It's a birth defect, and if you're bar- born with it, the most the oddest thing happens. For the first few years, you'll have weak muscle tone, and you won't be very interested in food. Somewhere around the three-year mark, you, the body of someone who suffers from Prader-Willi syndrome will change and they insatiably crave food. You see what's broken in them is the mechanism where your body communicates to you that you're full and you should stop eating. This doesn't work in them. And so they feel like they're starving all the time regardless of how much food they have consumed. And so it becomes a real challenge because they, you have to watch them constantly. They will go to any length to acquire food because they feel like their life actually depends on it. People are working on a cure for this. You can begin to imagine how difficult it would be to live with it. And Rochelle was going to a treatment center uh, in order to, to start to learn how to live in the midst of this condition. How do you teach yourself to not eat even though you're starving and count calories and exercise to some extent. And But she didn't want to leave home. She didn't want to leave her mother. But her mother knew, as difficult as it was, to pass her off to this, to this facility, that it was the best thing for Rochelle. That if Rochelle didn't actually learn these things, then she would never be able to care for herself, never be able to live independently of her of her mother's care, and when her mother inevitably passed, and what indeed would happen to Rochelle? Because if Rochelle didn't learn to control it, the story of a lot of um, Prater-Willi syndrome sufferers is like the story of of Jeremy Gerard, who was a fourteen or a seventeen-year-old. I'm sorry, in Florida, and his parents had gotten into the habit of throwing parties at home, and they were throwing their annual Christmas Eve party. And the reason they did that was they could keep an eye on Jeremy in the house and his relationship to food. But as the party went on, Jeremy was very clever and ate and woke up with stomach pains and was rushed to the hospital. His stomach was pumped, but he had consumed so much and distended his stomach and become septic that he died that night. And that's the story of, of many of these people who suffer with this condition. Now, I mean, what a horrible condition. And yet, is, is there not some, some echo? And when I'm reading this story, I'm actually thinking, huh, people who consume too much of a good thing to their own harm. I know that story. That's me and that's you. That we would love things and pursue them and be insatiable in our desire for things and consume them in a way that it is ultimately to our harm and unless we grow up in some capacity and learn to actually learn what it means to be free in Jesus, then we will always be subject to the syndrome that is sin and death that affects us. And that's what that's what's occurring here. Notice at the end, you know, Jesus says, It's necessary for me to depart. It's in my departure that you're going to be able to do great things. And all of this is leading up into the most beautiful and most uh, dense and significant explanation of the Holy Spirit in all of Scripture. 
that Jesus' departure is bound up in the Spirit being distributed. That what is happening in His departure is significant. It is absolutely necessary that the disciples right now are content to simply be in physical proximity with Jesus. And Jesus says, I don't want simply your allegiance. I want you, and I can't have you until A, you're atoned for, and B, the Spirit of God actually dwells inside of you. Then we are unified. And that will be a reality that is so far surpassing to what you're experiencing now. You know, you can't help but feel like Jesus probably doesn't, there are no words to explain it to them until it happens. You can only hint at it and move forward. Jesus says in verse 4, and you know the way where I'm going. To which Philip and probably the rest of the disciples say, what are you talking about? A, we don't know where you're going, so how could we possibly know the way when we don't even know where you're going? Jesus, I think, is referring to his death. The way that he must trod is to the cross. And in a smaller way, the way that they will trod also to God will be through their own deaths, but in a much less significant way. And so to their response, Jesus points up that the way for them is is not so much through a death that offers atonement, but through coming and being unified with Jesus as he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You know, we live in a period of unrivaled uh, uh, emphasis on pluralism. Right? We can't say that there is one way to God because that would mean that other ways aren't true and that would be too offensive and only leads to all the wars that we suffer in this world. Jesus, unapologetically, is being absolutely exclusive. There is one way to the Father and I'm it. And as we're tempted to participate in any extent to pluralism, not, and by not participating in pluralism, I don't mean we go to war. But what I do mean is that if, if everything reveals a little bit of the truth, then that means we don't actually have the truth. If everything shows us a little way up the mountain or a little aspect of the elephant, means in our lifetime we will never have access to the whole elephant or access to the whole mountain. And if there is no true truth, there is no ultimate truth, then there's really no truth. We all have bits and pieces that are not giving us any complete picture. But what troubles me is that so often this kind of claim, is, when it's conceived of as exclusive or talked about as exclusive, I think is understood in completely the wrong way. Jesus is, 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 remember, the departure of Jesus is at hand. The disciples are struggling. Jesus is saying, this is necessary, and this is the road that we have to go down for you to have me and for me to have you. For me truly to be relationally the way, the truth, and the life to you. Everything to you. It is, it is a relational statement more than it is anything else. Remember, the disciples are content right now with allegiance. And if Jesus left it there, it would have been so disappointing. Jesus wants them. Augustine has a famous sermon. It's um, called The Pure Love of God. And in it, he poses the most interesting question. He said, what if God came to you and said, I will give you everything that you want. I will make you eternal and powerful, and rich, and have all knowledge, everything. 
Nothing lacking except you will never see my face. Is that a deal you want to take? And Augustine says if you say yes, then you don't really love God. If you say no, then you're approaching what is, is to be pure, to know pure love of God. This is what Jesus is after, that in drawing the disciples into himself and going to the cross and then ultimately distributing the Spirit, he wants them to draw them into a relationship, a unity with him, and a, therefore a unity with the Trinity, in which we can actually aspire to the pure love of God. Where a love and relationship is not simply characterized by what we might get from God, which is where the disciples are right now, but that we actually get God. And this is what Jesus alludes to as he continues to, to move forward. He does what seems like a, a non sequitur. It doesn't seem to quite logically follow. But if we take a step back, I think we'll see that it fits quite nicely. He goes on to say that the Father uh, reveals the Son. Look at verse 7. Jesus says, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And again, confusion. Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. <laughs> Quit messing around. We haven't seen the Father. If you get the Father to show up right here, we're good to go. Right? We under- That will be fine. We will be very content if the Father shows up. And Jesus says, "How you know? whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? What do you think you've been looking at for three years? Who do you think that I am? As you have seen me, you have seen the Father. I and the Father are one. Now, why does Jesus go there? Why does Philip want to go there? Because you realize that that relativizes everything. If suddenly you say that Jesus is God the Father, that the creator of the universe, the one who spoke creation into existence out of nothing, who hung the stars in the sky, is present with them in humanity... And he says, I'm leaving. Right? You say, okay. You know, that's not what I expected. And frankly, I'm a little disappointed. But you're the father. You're the creator. And then I'm going to presume that your departure is going to be just fine. And they're wrestling with who Jesus is. The early church will wrestle with who Jesus is. But when you start to understand that Jesus is God, then you start to say, oh, well, whatever Jesus says goes. Whatever he may speak or require or suggest is suddenly the best possible of all possible routes or paths because he is divinity. If the disciples understood this, then the struggle. Of course, Jesus can depart if he wants and everything will be accomplished. It's, it's like when the, the, the Roman soldier... Or, See, I'm not even sure if it was the soldier. Do you remember the story where the, the child is sick and the, um, the man goes, Jesus comes to heal the, the child. And, um, the centurion, I believe, I may be wrong in that, centurion says, uh, I just, I expected you to simply say the word, not to show up in person. Listen, I'm over a number of, you know, regiments of soldiers and I give a word and my command is carried out without question. I never expected that you would come here. You could have given the command and my child would have been healed. And what does Jesus say? Greater faith have I not seen in Israel. Why? Because he understands more than the Israelites did who Jesus was. 
this is what Jesus is getting at. If you understood that I was the Father, you wouldn't be worried. You would simply trust. Because everything is at my command and disposal. I'm the Creator. And this is what the disciples are wrestling with. That then they might move in that direction of understanding actually who Jesus is and trust in God's providence. The result of this is quite astounding and somewhat surprising. And you can hear behind it still fear, but Jesus is moving on. He's saying, listen, I'm departing and to prepare a place for you, yes, to go to the cross. Also, you know, hinting at and continuing to develop in the chapters to come, my departure is also about developing you, preparing you, not just preparing a place. And you have to understand that everything is under control because I am the Father. The Father is in me and I am in Him. But even as He suggests departing, you know, if you were a disciple, what would be your fear? You know, you've seen some pretty amazing things go on over the last three years. Miraculous healings, casting out of demons, feeding multitudes, changing water into wine. And I think one of the questions that would certainly be on the table would, Jesus, if you depart, uh, really there's no show. We, we, aren't, we aren't able to do what you're able to do. And this whole movement centers around you. If you depart, we're stuck because we, we don't have anything after you're gone. Everything revolves around you. Jesus is hinting at, no, it's not going to all. It will revolve around me, but it will revolve around me as it revolves around you because you're about to be commissioned to do my work. Jesus says in verse 12, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. And in verse 14, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Okay, right? If you grew up in the church, at some point as a young person, maybe even now, you try it out. Right? Don't lie to me. I see the guilt in so many faces. Some of you are grinning, but some of you are like, oh my goodness, I hope he doesn't know what I asked for. Right? You try it out because it says it's pretty straightforward promise. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Well, Jesus, I ask you for a car. This car, in the driveway right now, in Jesus' name, amen. Or, Jesus, you know so-and-so, please make them like me. Amen. In your name, amen. Right? Like it's magic. Got to get the in your name. And, of course, that's not what Jesus is after. Doing something in someone's name means that you are participating in the agenda of that thing. Sometimes you'll see a protest, people carrying posters that say something like, not in my name. What it means is, don't carry out the action you're doing in my name because I don't endorse it. And so by doing something in Jesus' name, we're participating in his agenda, participating in that which he would endorse, that he would find agreement with. Still, this is an amazing promise, that you would do greater things, greater works than Jesus has done. What does that mean? The church has wrestled with this over the centuries, and sometimes we try to minimize it. Oh, well, that was for the apostles. Not so much today, or it was, it's done. Or sometimes we, we make it about a, a kind of a global perspective, a trajectory. Well, what started in Jesus was just really for Israel, and then we take it forward to the world, and that's greater. I think there's some truth to that. 
Personally, I think what is going on for John here, John has spent so much time emphasizing Jesus as the Passover lamb, so much time speaking about the love that is captured in his death, and we'll soon say that there is no greater work than one lay down his life, that what, what is being hinted at is that if J- the greatest work that Jesus does is lay down his life for sinners, what is, the, what is greater than that? that you will lay down your life for one another and for those outside the church. And it's greater in a sense that Jesus goes from being perfect to displaying perfect love. You go from being a sinner and enemy of God to working towards perfect love. And in a sense, there's something greater about that. Of course, it's all glory to Christ because He has affected it. But by participating in the story of Jesus and then as people who are completely selfish and dominated by our own desires, that the Spirit begins to work on us and through us to demonstrate the love of God when we lay down our lives for one another, when we wash one another's feet, this is a very great work. In one sense, it's greater than what has transpired. Not not in its effect, but in that, that someone... You know, the story of the gospel is that God takes Gollum and makes him a prince. That's a great story. That's a great work. And then when you reflect that to the world and and participate in that, something outstanding is happening. Something really marvelous and hard to understand. And so it's in this that we that we wrestle. We wrestle with what it really means to believe that Jesus is the Father. And we wrestle with our own faith in that and what kind of works that it produces. Do you believe that Jesus is the Father? Don't tell me yes. Because if your answer was yes and the answer was truthful, your entire life would be laid down for Him. You wouldn't even question it. And so we struggle all the time with believing that Jesus is the Father and believing that actually we are enabled to do true and proper works generated by His love for us. I mentioned the Chinese church in the beginning and told you that I'd bring it back up. They face an interesting, um, an interesting dilemma. The Chinese church has grown and what's happened in the last decade or two, um, maybe not quite two, is that the Chinese government actually backed way up from exercising control and influence on the Chinese church so that the Chinese church has grown not only in house churches, but the, the state churches, which you have to register with, have grown as well. The government has kind of backed off. Now they've gotten to the extent where some of the pastors have, are you know, ministering to millions of, of Chinese in certain cities, and it's become uncomfortable because they're starting to actually take stances that are contrary to the Communist Party line. Um, but it's in, this, it's in this season of growth, and it, the church in big industrialized cities has become wealthy, has become more mainstream, that the Chinese church is wrestling with its identity. And one of... Um, so, you know, to understand, I want to make sure that I'm being clear, the Chinese church absolutely thrived after the Cultural Revolution. Remember at the beginning I said, where is Jesus in this? It seems awful. 
Well, it was the best chapter of the church's history in, in China's history. Now, as the Chinese church is enjoying wealth and affluence and influence, it's having trouble. And one, uh, one Beijing house church elder said, he nodded, he said, essentially, we all know the story of Christianity in Western Europe and in, in America in the West. And he said, if we get full religious freedom, then the church is finished. He said, we know what happens when the church is given complete freedom and can do whatever it wants and can, can pursue affluence. We've seen it in at Rome at the end of the Middle Ages, and we see it in the West, and we know that we're done in that sense. And so we see even the church leaders in China are saying, yeah, we don't actually want the persecution to end even though it feels a little bit like Jesus has deserted us because it's in that desertion that we've actually grown and thrived and gotten to know him, that we've been forced to actually wrestle with whether we believe he's the Father or not and what it means to do greater works than he has done. And we know the truth of those statements in the way that the West doesn't because we've suffered persecution and known his absence or his perceived absence. What is it for us? to know what the Chinese church knows and the Indian church knows and to wake up, to really come to believe again that Jesus is the Father and we've been called to do greater works than he has done. As we go to the table this morning, let's beg him to grow us up in it, to give, him more, uh, give us more of himself that we might mature to that very calling. Let's pray. God, our Father, we thank you for your grace in Christ. And we struggle to understand the pain and the heartache of the disciples as Jesus departed. It must have been uh, excruciating and hopeless. And yet in it was the cross and resurrection and life. And so we pray that you would give us that same wisdom in the moments that we feel deserted. In the moments that we feel your absence, we would believe that you are working something that is remarkable. And so help us... Help us to trust you as if you are truly the creator of the world. Help us to believe that through your Spirit, you would entrust to us the work of surrendering our own lives. And let us again know the health and vitality of the church, the willingness to be persecuted for that which we believe, and to understand that the exclusivism of the way, the truth, and the life, the exclusivism of Jesus Christ is the offer of life itself. May we cling to it by your grace. Amen.